0: Alert Medic One respond. Three, two, one. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Hello and welcome to the Alarm Medic One podcast. My name is Mustafa Sadiq.
1: And I'm Ken Sanner.
0: Today we're going to be finishing up our series on vital signs by talking about something that maybe isn't considered a vital sign, and that is the EKG.
1: Yeah, really not a vital sign, but it's a diagnostic. And we're not going to get all into different 12-lead you know, findings, stuff like that so much. But we're going to talk about what the ECG is or the EKG, the terms can be used interchangeably. And it is a tool that gives us a lot of information, and it can be used for more than just, you know, what is the rhythm, what is the rate. So with that, uh, I guess we'll kind of jump right into it. It's important to understand that the ECG really only represents the electrical activity of the heart, not the mechanical activity. Pulseless electrical activity is a thing. And while the ECG shows us what we should have happening in the heart, non-perfusing rhythms and beats can happen, right? So you can have a non-perfusing PVC or a PVC that's perfusing so poorly you don't feel it. You have anything you want to add to that, Moose?
0: No, I mean, that's that's the key, right? So I love how National Registry will always give you that one scenario where it's like, this patient is also synaptic apneic, and they'll give you a normal science rhythm mm-hmm. on the static EKG section. And there's always a few people that say, oh, that's just normal science, and then we move on. Right. right. When in reality, yeah.
1: Yeah, PEA is a thing, so it's just something important to be aware of. You know, what you see on the monitor doesn't actually necessarily represent what's going on with the patient. So treat the patient, not the monitor, as we always like to say. So when we start to get into some of the A&P with ECGs, one thing to keep in mind is that cardiac muscle has several unique properties. I'm only getting over three of them, but they are important. It's automaticity, which is the ability to generate an electrical impulse, excitability, which is the ability to respond to an electrical impulse and conductivity, which is the ability to transmit the electrical impulse. So cardiac cells all have these properties. Essentially what we're saying is that one cardiac cell can initiate an electrical impulse. It can send it to another cell. That cell can then respond to that and transmit it again further or contract, you know, whatever the case is. So the normal pathway of electrical activity in the heart starts out at the sinoatrial node It then moves through the internodal pathways to the AV junction, the uh, atrioventricular junction or atrioventricular node. There, the impulse is collected or slowed and then transmitted into the ventricles through the bundle of his, the left and right bundle branches and the Purkinje fibers. So it's important to understand that That's a normal flow of electrical activity. Sometimes things don't quite work out the way we want. We can have accessory pathways. You know, we can have parts that are blocked, stuff like that. But that's what's supposed to happen. The SA node has an intrinsic rate of 60 to 100 beats per minute or impulses per minute. The AV junction is the backup pacemaker site at 40 to 60 beats per minute. And then anything in the ventricles has an intrinsic rate of about 20 to 40. So just something to keep in mind uh, that those rates aren't always fast and hard, but uh, that's a general thing we find. When we look at ECG morphology, when we look at an actual ECG complex, there's a couple different parts to it. So we have the P wave, which represents atrial depolarization. It's normally upright. It's normally not notched or anything like that. That could indicate some sort of an atrial abnormality. After the P wave, we have what we call the PR interval or the PRI, which uh, has a duration of 0.12 to 0.2 seconds. That represents the travel time uh, of the electrical impulse from the SA node to the AV node. Following that, we have the QRS complex, which represents ventricular depolarization. A normal QRS complex is less than 0.12 seconds in uh, duration. So the next part we want to talk about is the ST segment. So this is the absolute refractory period where the heart's beginning to repolarize, but there's absolutely no electrical activity. Basically, nothing can cause the heart to discharge energy during this period. Then you have the T-wave, which is ventricular repolarization. The second half is a relative refractory period, and it can be stimulated into depolarizing, which can precipitate ventricular fibrillation, which is why it's so important to make sure you sync your monitor when you do a synchronized cardioversion, because if you actually hit on that T-wave, you could end up killing your patient, which is not a good thing. The last thing I'll note as far as ECG morphology goes is the QT interval. The QT interval is normally 0.36 to 0.44 seconds. It's measured from the start of the QRS to the end of the T wave, and it measures the total duration of ventricular activity. A prolonged QT interval can put you at risk for torsades, pointes. Or ventricular fibrillation. Do you have anything you want to add to any of that A&P stuff, Moose? No,
0: I think it'll be a good thing to maybe dive into the act, the cardiac action potential specifically in another episode. Just okay. Because it's so... Yeah,
1: the electrochemical like, yeah, part.
0: Uh, yeah, it's just it's so complicated and there's so many... Different facets to it, and I think it's a it's an active field where people are you know recognizing like for example we used to think that the the sodium testing pump was this like end all be all that maintained the green mm-hmm. where now we're realizing that maybe that's not the case or at least it doesn't play as big of a role as it did. But I think uh, we can dive into that another into another
1: uh, Okay. Episode, yeah. 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 We don't want to talk about that right now. But what I do want to talk about right now is the practicality of the ECG. What can we actually use it for? Now, the most obvious thing is that we use a thermometer for cardiac arrhythmias, right? That's the primary thing we're doing with you know, at least a three-lead ECG, but it can be used for other things. You know, we can detect ischemic heart disease, like a semi-ST segment elevation MI, if we use a twelve-lead. Certainly, we can't diagnose any sort of ST segment elevation without doing an actual twelve-lead or fifteen-lead or eighteen-lead. But it's a very useful tool for that. It can provide evidence for electrolyte imbalances. Certainly not. It's it's not a definitive diagnostic tool. But if you have hyperkalemia. You know if too high potassium, you're, you're often going to have uh, hyper acute T waves. We can also see, you know, a widening QRS complex, a sine wave can occur, so stuff like that. We can see T wave flattening and, or even inversion or U waves when we have hypercalcemia or hypokalemia, and we can also see Osborne waves with hypothermia. So, there are a lot of different things that we can kind of see with the ECG and it's not diagnostic for all those things, but it is a piece of evidence to add to our case. And
0: there's such a good the EKG, in my opinion, should be utilized so much more than I see it used right now. There's so many findings that are, like, one of my pet peeves is syncope, right? There's people try to, so many times to uh, you know be a, less, a syncope patient or treat it at the basic level as opposed to the advanced level, when there's so many different ailments that are only caught on EKG, right? So when we're talking about arrhythmogenic uh, ventricular hypo- hypertrophy or, uh, you know, Brugata syndrome, right? That, you know, the double notching of the epsilon wave for the, uh, hyper- the hypertrophy or you're seeing like that incomplete right bundle pattern um, that you're only going to get in your syncope patient if you take that EKG, right? Or, I mean, there's so many different things that we can dive into in later episodes regarding the specific ailments, but it's such a useful tool that is, it takes
1: literally 30 seconds. Yeah. And I think it is important to highlight a syncopal episode should never be a BLS call. That patient needs to have a minimum of a 12 lead ECG done. There are two other points I want to touch on, on the usefulness of the ECG. It can provide evidence for increased intracranial pressure. You can have what's called cerebral T waves, which are very deep T-wave inversions, you can also have U-waves with that as well. And one last good thing is it can provide evidence for acidosis if you have a wide QRS rhythm, particularly in the setting of a tricyclic antidepressant overdose, hyperkalemia patient, you know, or anybody else who may be acidotic. And, And that's, you know, that's a pretty drastic finding once you get to that point. However, it is still something to be aware of. So how does the ECG really work? So the connections between the bipolar leads or the bipolar, yeah, the bipolar leads form Eindhoven's triangle when two electrodes, which have a positive and a negative, basically form a lead. The lead is actually the line between the two electrodes. And on one end of that, you have a positive, and on the other end, you have a negative. And they view the heart from that particular direction. So when we talk about the bipolar leads, we're talking about leads one, two, and three. Now, we can add to that by adding a grounding lead. You can have augmented voltage leads, AVF, AVL, and AVR. And then you can also add precordial leads, V1 through 6, uh, which provide an additional view for each unipolar lead set to look at a particular area of the heart. Do you have anything you want to add to how it works, Moose?
0: No, I think that's uh, a, okay. a really good explanation. I was going to say, yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I mean,
0: but I will say that that's important, though, right? Like, so... And I'll be the first one to say that that's not something I think about all day, but the, right. the the review that you just gave, you know, for is something that is important to understand when we see a, like, what is the point of a flipped part, right? It's it, in that direction. It's, you know, in the, whether it's anatomical or physiological, it, there's a, a difference in where the normal physiological weight is. Right. And there's usually, you know, if we're in the, in the scope of treatment, that is a pathological thing that we need to notice.
1: Sure. Yeah. So just kind of to recap everything that I've said up till now, just remember the ECG has a lot of different functionality. It's vital to our practice as a paramedic. It can monitor rhythms. It can detect other dangerous issues. So it's important to remember your basics and remember your rules for rhythm interpretation and 12-lead assessment. And when you're in doubt on a rhythm, ask yourself, what is the rate? is my rhythm regular or irregular? Do you have a P wave? Is my PRI normal and consistent with each complex? And is my QRS wide and narrow? Those steps will really get you through to figuring out, you know, whatever your rhythm is. There are only a limited number of cardiac rhythms. You know, your your rhythm could only be one of so many things. So just keep that in mind. You know, a lot of people kind of get into blocks and stuff and they get confused and where this isn't an EKG interpretation episode, but just remember that there are rules and rhythms follow the rules and you can always figure out what it is if you know your rules well enough.
0: Though, and uh, that's such a good point, right? And so I think EKG interpretation, and I think this is a pitfall that a lot of paramedic students have, is to understand what an EKG is, you have to understand cardiac anatomy and physiology, right? So Absolutely. I don't really care if you know that the p waves are you know not marching out on a regular basis or there's extra p waves uh, or you know anything like that i don't really care you could be the best you, know, you can show me you know some weird ekg interpretation but if you don't understand what's actually going on in the heart then what's the point right, right? Um, i mean i think that what's really helped me as a paramedic in understanding heart blocks and things like that is understanding that a P wave is atrial depolarization, Mm -hmm. right? And when there's, you know, whether there's a, you know, progressive increasing of the PR interval or there's no correlation at all, it helps me understand that the atria and the ventricles aren't communicating like they're supposed to. And that in that uh, internodal pathway, right, there there may be a block. Similarly with understanding PEA, and I I really want to get into, uh, in later episodes, there's a physician that talks about a rational approach to PEA, and what a narrow complex versus a wide complex is. But if you don't understand that, you know, the QRS complex is ventricular depolarization, then it's all moot, right?
1: And I think there is real-world application to that. You know, you brought up blocks, and if you understand that a particularly high-degree heart block means the SA node isn't talking to the AV node, and there's some miscommunication somewhere in there— You can kind of guide your treatment because maybe you want to give atropine for this bradycardic patient, but if you realize that atropine works by blocking vagal stimulation, which would then allow the rate of the SA node to increase, well, if you have a third-degree block, complete heart block, it doesn't matter if you increase that atrial rate to 200. You know, the ventricular escape rhythm that's going on or the junctional escape rhythm that's going on is going to keep doing its own thing, and there's, there's no communication there. So, Transcutaneous pacing might be the best option for that patient.
0: I think another point that I really want to harp on that you taught me, Ken, is that systemic approach to to an EKG interpretation. I think that's something I harp on all the time, whether, you know, have a concise, stepwise approach to your patient assessment. Similarly, you need to have a concise, stepwise approach to your EKG interpretation. Because in paramedic school, you will be looking at, you know, various different, you know, maybe clean cut EKGs. And then you're that first patient that has artifact and you're trying to get an interpretation and you look at the EKG and you're like, what am I looking for? Right? <laughs> and that's when the that systemic approach of, oh, are there P waves or is there, a, you know, and the, uh, the stepwise approach that Ken reviewed earlier is paramount in your successful interpretation of that EKG.
1: Absolutely. So, we want to thank you for listening to us today. Moose and I greatly appreciate your time. We hope you come back and listen again. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a rating and a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Take a moment to check out our Facebook page, give us a like, follow us on Twitter, and always check out our website, alertmedical1.com. We have a lot of great content there, short articles that are impactful to your everyday practice as an EMS clinician, whether you're an ALS provider or a BLS provider.
0: We've forgotten to mention it in the past you know, a couple episodes, but I really cannot drive home the, the need for your involvement as the listener. We've said it before, and I said it before, we can sit here and talk all day about you know what we think is relevant, but we have no idea what's going on across the country, across the world, and we want this to be relevant to the community, and we want it to be community-driven. If we're not doing something so hot, please tell us. If there's something that we're doing well, please, please, please tell us. We want this to be driven by our community, and we want to improve the community at large.
1: We're the hosts, but this is your podcast, so let us know what the issues and trends you want to hear about are.
0: And if you're interested in participating, please reach out. And it doesn't only, if you're not an EMT or paramedic, that's absolutely fine. If you're a nurse, you know, if you're a... uh, Physician, if anyone, pharmacist, anyone in medicine that has a vested interest in pre-hospital care or, or in emergency care, we want to hear from you because we understand that EMS and emergency medicine isn't just the paramedic, isn't just the EMT, isn't just the, you know, the ER physician and nurses. It's everybody. It's a collection. But yeah,
1: thank you again for listening in. Uh, Ken, you good? I'm good. Hey. Have a good week, everybody.
0: Thank you very much. That's all for now. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.